It's time for mystery. Mystery Radio. I'm an older boy over there. Father calls me Little Jake. I sure got you working the late shift. I've been trying to get a hold of you all day. Father wants a favor. I'll make it a small one. I'm all out of the big one. He just wanted to know if you could come by St. Timothy's and see him. He said tomorrow morning right after the 9 o'clock. Okay. Tell him he keeps terrible hours. I'll be there. Thanks, Mr. Kelly. Mr. Kelly? Yeah, that's right. I'm a kid good boy. He knows his way out. Should I go, Mr. Kelly? Be a kid. Yes, sir. Goodbye, Mr. Kelly. Yeah. Goodbye, Jake. You got someplace private we'd like to talk. This is my office. Now listen hard, bright eyes. There's enough gun in this coat to blow you right through the wall. I'll take your word for it. We come in here nice and you get funny, man. Now you got someplace we can talk. I can't leave. I gotta do a number. Do it. We'll be right here about ten feet from your stomach. Yeah. All right. Let's go. You look sick, Pete. What's the matter? I feel fine. 
I'm sorry now. Everybody ready? Let's go. Now, let's go. Yeah. Keep them going, Red. How many shall we do, Pete? If this works out, about ten minutes worth. Let's go. The alley will do. We need a favor, Kelly. Yeah, there's a run on them tonight. Give me the envelope, Dix. Yeah. You got an inside coat pocket, Kelly? Come on, come on. Either throw or pass the dice. Hold him, Dix. Dex. Come on. Up. Yeah. Now, this is how. Here's an envelope. It goes in your inside coat pocket and it stays there until 6 o'clock tomorrow night. You don't open it, you don't mess with it. What happens at 6 o'clock? You'll be the first to know. Well, I stood there in the alley and watched them walk away. Inside, Lupo was blowing up a storm. Something about paying for a seven-piece band and only having six. Well, it wasn't worth trying to get back on the stand. I got a cab and went up to my room. I tried to get to sleep. It was no good. I got up. I was sick to my stomach. After that, I went to sleep. The next morning, I made a pass at some breakfast and tried to look through the sports page. Harry Heilman got four for five against the Red Sox, but that's all I read. That envelope had me. People have been taken out in alleys before and they've been worked over. Usually to get something away from them, not to give it to them. No matter how I tried to put it together, it wouldn't come out. Thin or fat, it wouldn't slice. I had the envelope and I had to wait till six o'clock. Well, I gave up on the coffee and I started over to see Father Cronin. It was a little after 9.30 when I started up the steps of St. Timothy's. I figured mass was almost over, so I hung around in the vestibule for a couple of minutes trying to look like a part-time bell ringer. Hi, Mr. Kelly. Hello, Jake. Father's back in the sacristy, Mr. Kelly. He said for me to show you the way. They move it? No, sir. All right, Jake, show me the way. This way, Mr. Kelly. Down this aisle. Well, I guess I was too busy trying to act like I knew my way around to pay much attention to a fat, chunky little guy wearing a brown Borsalino hat. He stood up in a back pew a couple of aisles over. The church was empty except for the three of us. 
Little Jake found out about it just before I did. Mr. Tilly, that man back there. All right, mister. I'll take that envelope. Jake, get out. Mr. Tilly, look out. Look out. Well, in Kansas City, you learn early to look for trouble. Any place, any time. But this is the first time it caught up with me in the middle of a church. The last three shots were a waste of money. Jake went down like young wheat in a hailstorm. When I grabbed for him, I hit my head in the base of a marble pillar. I lost the edge right there. By the time I hit the street, he was gone. I guess I covered every alley and street in the neighborhood. But it was like trying to wash a pail of dirty water. I don't know how much later it was when I stopped for a minute in an empty doorway and tried to remember what I was chasing. Well, a siren was crying off somewhere in the distance and I started back for the church. The coroner's wagon was just pulling away as I got there. I didn't see Father Cronin around, so I went back to the rectory and rang the bell. He came to the door in his shirt sleeve. He stood there for a minute just looking at me. Then he motioned me inside. In here. Sit down. The kid, Father? Little Jake. He's dead. You want to blow by blow? Yeah, I know, Father. I was there. Sure you were there. You're always there. I should have known better than to call you. I should have known it meant trouble. Oh, wait a minute, Father. This wasn't my party. I called you here today to ask you a favor, Pete. Yeah, I know. You don't know. It's too late now. We're going to have an altar boys picnic tomorrow at Washington Park. I wanted you to play a little music for us. We won't be going now, Pete. We got a funeral instead. Yeah. What do you want me to say? Don't say anything, Pete. If you've got any private fights, that's your business. But don't bring your beefs into the church. I never saw the guy before, Father. Don't kid me. He didn't come in here to shoot little Jake. Now, look, I know this is hard to understand. You bet it's hard to understand. We've been over it before, but you ran with the same pack. You hung on to the same friends. You had it all figured out. Well, you figured this one, Pete. There's a nine-year-old boy on his way to the morgue. He took a gangster's bullet that you earned. Now you go ahead. Figure it. I, I got this envelope. I don't want an explanation. Take your excuses and peddle them where you need them. For the bootleggers and the gunmen. Take them to your crowd. This envelope, Father. They shoved it in my pocket. I was out in the alley behind the club. Two guys. They worked me over. I didn't think they'd try anything like this. Neither did little Jake. All right, Father. I told you I was sorry. Go on home. Why don't you stop cutting at me and say a prayer for that kid? I would, but I'm too busy praying for people like you. How do you explain away a dead kid lying in front of an altar rail? All I could offer was a two-cent envelope in my coat pocket in a wild night in an alley. I started to walk back to my room. I tried to paste up some kind of an answer, but I got nothing. I was halfway home when the last breeze left town and went someplace to cool off. My clothes were soaking wet, and I decided to take a cab the rest of the way. I reached in my pocket, and all I had was 23 cents, so I kept walking. Sunday morning's the same in any town. Empty streets and everybody home trading the comic section and living off of Saturday night. You could live here all your life, and on Sunday morning you just got in town. It was about noon when I got to my hotel. I went up to the second floor and unlocked my door. They were sitting on the bed. Their coats were off, and they'd hung them on the back of a chair. The same two boys who'd given me the envelope last night. Real hot room here, Kelly. You want to move off this cord? Yeah, next time I'll get twin beds. Is everything all right with that envelope? It made a murder, mister. You take it. Put it back in your pocket. Now, get this, both of you. There's a lot of something wrong here. I've had my turn. You find yourself another fall guy. There's a lot of inside coat pockets in this town. Look for a new one. We like yours, and that's where it's going to stay. Now, you don't listen good. Me and Dex put it out last night, and you didn't pick up on it. We got you on board, and we'll tell you when to get off. Six o'clock, boy. How long do you think this jag will last? Look, I'm cashing in. I've had enough. What were you doing this morning? Trying to pray your way out? A priest wanted a favor. I got it, Lon. Yeah. Yeah, he's in. 
No, he's busy. From two or five. Sure, come on up. Benny. You went for it, huh? On his way up. We're going to stay a while, Kelly. Well, there's only three chairs. I'll make it easy for you. Stay put, mister. No, he's your friend. I'm checking out. <laughs> First time you've been right. Well, it happened so fast I didn't even see his arm move. My knees buckled and I pitched forward. I don't know how long I laid there, but when I opened my eyes, the afternoon sun was almost gone. What was left of it was bleeding through a rip in the blind. Well, I could hear somebody breathing hard like a fat man on a hot day, and when I rolled over, I saw him. A tough prohibition agent by the name of Cage. The weather didn't make any difference to Cage. He always looked that way. His collar was wilted, and it looked like Arrow's first try. His necktie was pulled down, and the knot was twisted. The heat had worked him over so that the front of his shirt was splotchy and damp. Reminded you of a first grader's map of the world. He was sitting in a chair with his arms draped over the back and his head resting on his hands. He was smoking a mile of violet, but it didn't help that much. His mouth was wound around a toothy grin, and he looked like a mountain lion who'd just eaten her young. You can get up now, Keller. You made your point. Yeah, sure. How long you been here? Long enough to fill out your book and slip. You're going to jail, mister. What for? Sleeping on the floor? For the dead guy on the bed. Who is he? I don't know. How'd he get there? You put him there after you shot him. I get you. Look, prohibition's your racket. Dead bodies are out of your line. Not when I find him in your room. Now let's go downtown. We'll both tell homicide. We'll find the details later. Gage, you couldn't find yourself in a mirror. I didn't have anything to do with this, and you know it. I've been out for the last three hours. This happened after they slugged Save you. it for the jury. All I know is I got a phone tip to check room 205. I come up here and I find you and a dead guy. That's all I need. You can dress it up fancy and make it look cute, but it still comes out there's enough liquor in this town to float it away, and you're wasting your time with a killing that's none of your business. You're my business, big shot. Somebody put two pounds of lead in Benny's chest, and you're my pick. Benny who? Benny Davis. He worked for Mike Quinlan. You look pale. Yeah, I'm just beginning to feel the squeeze. Mike Quinlan on one side, and those two trigger men that you let walk out of here on the other. You got it, and I'll be turning a handle. Now, before you start worrying about your picture in the paper, you better turn up the two guys that were here with me. That part of the same dream? They gave me an envelope to hold for him. The price on it's going up with a minute. A nine-year-old kid died for it, and this guy here on the bed. That's a good story. Do you write him down or just make him up? Look, you got nothing on me, and I haven't got much time. I'm leaving you. That's all right. I call downtown. The minute you hit the street, they'll pick you up. In the meantime, you better come up with more than you got. They don't hang you in this state on a hunch. I'm gonna check this room over. I'll find all we need. You couldn't find your head with both hands. Goodbye, Cage. All right, you got till midnight, big shot, and then I'll be around. Yeah. I'll have it all set up. All we'll need is time to run the extra. Well, I could have used a cold shower, but with Cage there, I didn't have the room to dry off. I went down the hall and headed down the back stairs. I figured even if Cage was right about calling downtown, I might have an edge if I moved fast enough. The sun was on the downgrade, but it didn't make any difference. It'd done a good job all day, and the heat was boiling up out of the ground. So if I was going to come out at all, I had to have some help. So I started to look for the only honest guy I know, an ex-bootlegger by the name of Barney Ricketts. The only bootlegger in the country that went broke in 1922. He drank himself out of business. I phoned eight different places and tried four. Nobody'd seen him. I was about ready to give up when I finally found him sitting in the middle of a bourbon fog in a little Spanish joint somewhere on the edge of the East Bottom. He was sitting at a back table trying his best to make time with a plaster bust of Queen Isabella. <laughs> ah, pity me, boy. You're just in time. I'm not quite certain, but I think the young lady here has a friend. I gotta talk to you, Barney. If you're any good at all with Spanish, now is the time. I was positive she'd loosen up on this second bottle of wine, but no, she's utterly uncharitable, and I think she's a picture of a perfect boy. Yeah, all right, Barney. Since you're a member of the old Castilian school, there can be no excuse for the conduct she's exhibiting. Yeah. Why, do you know I was even good enough to buy her three rounds of Portuguese brandy? Imported, mind you. But what do I get for my pains? Not even a civil 
real thank you. All right, listen to me, will you, Barney? I'm sitting here in the most gentlemanly fashion, sipping this delicate nectar and trying vainly to keep the party going. But does she help? No! I've talked to her about politics, medicine, literature, Keith, Byron, Shelley, Faith Baldwin. I've even talked about the weather. Barney, she's a statue. Oh, a simple oversight, Pete. It could happen to anyone. Now, look, I'm in trouble. Of course you're in trouble. You'll always be in trouble because you're a child of adversity, a son of scorn. The fate spit in your eye and you try to retaliate, but the wind's always blowing in the wrong direction. You're a lost leaf in the mortal storm, Petey. You're a pebble shaking a tiny fist at the mountain. You'd like to fight for some strange, fantastic cause, wouldn't you? But you can't find anybody your size. Men are too small and the gods are too big. Petey, you're lost. You all through now. Yes, what kind of trouble? A pair of bum murder raps. Somebody slugged me in my room and I woke up with a dead guy. Oh, dubious honor. You mentioned two murders. One of them was an altar boy over at St. Timothy's. The other guy worked for Mike Quinlan. The same Quinlan that controls most of the Canadian import here in town? Yeah, that's him. Oh, time's short. Let's finish the brandy. Two guys started all this at the club last night. Names are Ludd and Dex. Mean anything to you? This law sound better with more brandy. Uh, you picked two of Quinlan's first string. Ludd Sandell and Dex Porter, both killers. Look, they gave me an envelope to hang on to. Now, nose around. See if you can find out what it all means. The dead guy up in my room, his name's Benny Davis. See if you can find out where he fits in, will you? It'd be a lot simpler if you just joined Quinlan's gang. Benny Davis holds a card in the same organization. Well, how about Ludd and Dex? Any bad blood between them and if Davis? If there is, it doesn't show. They're closer than unborn peas. You sure about that, Barney? Police blotter can't be that wrong. Benny's sister will tell you the same thing. Well, where do I find her? Chelsea Apartments. Beautiful girl, Petey. When you're my age, she'll disturb your memories. All right, now get going, will you? See how close you can get to Quinlan's headquarters. Find out what you can about Ludd and Dex and Benny Davis. Maybe Quinlan's got him on a special job or something. Find out what it is, will you? You find me in a temporary economic slump, Petey. I'll need car fare. Yeah, well, that makes two of us. I'm broke. You'll have to do it on foot. Oh, well, I have friends here. And my credit's unlimited. Well, hurry up, will you, Barney? One moment. Alfonso, would you loan me a dollar and a half? Come on, let's go. He's only bluffing. He won't shoot. <laughs> Barney headed down toward Bale Street for Mike Quinlan's place, and I started across town for the north end in the Chelsea apartments. I couldn't begin to work it out. If Dex and Ludd were such good friends with Benny Davis, why did they kill him? And if they didn't do it, who planted his body in my room and why? Well, I was running way late, and there wasn't much time to catch up. I finally found the Chelsea apartments on the corner of Stocker and Bale's. with an old three-story wooden frame. I checked the mailbox, and Louise Davis was down for apartment 17. Well, inside, the hallway was dark, and a couple of gas jets were smoking up the ceiling. There was a potted palm by the foot of the stairs, and it looked like it was growing out of old gum wrappers and cigar butts. Apartment 17 was at the rear of the first floor. She answered the door, and you could tell right away Barney was right. She was pretty, and she had enough smile to last you for years. Yes? You Louise Davis? That's right. I can do better for you. You're Pete Kelly. I've heard you play. Yeah, well, so far you're batting a thousand. Can I come in? Yeah, sure. You didn't bring your band, so it must be a social call. I'll make this short. It's about Benny. What about him? That's what I want to know. He's got a couple of friends. I got to know about him. Then he isn't that popular. You mean Ludd and Dex? They'll do. They got trouble and they're cutting me in. What kind of trouble? Well, I'm not sure. That's why I came to you. I can't help you. They never tell me what they're doing. Well, they gave me an envelope. They told me to hold it till 6 o'clock tonight. You haven't got any problem. You'll know in an hour. Yeah, well, maybe I'm tired. I want to know now. I'll take any lead you got. They found out I told you this. They might not like it. They got some kind of a beef with Quinlan. Does Mike know about it? I wouldn't know. I just heard him talking one night. They're not happy with the money Quinlan gives them. They got any plans? I don't think we've got to talk about this. Let me get you a drink, huh? Now, look, this is the last trip around for me, lady. i got to have everything you know. You said something about an envelope, didn't you? That's right. You got it? Right here. 
If you open it, you'll understand everything. Well, they gave it to me sealed. They want it back the same way. If you want to be around to give it back, you'd better open it. You got a guarantee, Andy? All I know is the three of them are working on something big. I don't know what it is, but I heard some talk about an envelope. It's your choice. You ask for a lead and you got it. Yeah, we'll hold hands when they cut me down. You got a letter opener? Pete, look out! Well, it all happened faster than a Mexican divorce. Louise Davis was dead before the echo left the room. Well, I got to the window, but whoever did the shooting was gone. I grabbed the envelope, and on my way out, I took another look at her. There wasn't anything left but the smile. I cut through a couple of back lots and down an alley. I stopped in the doorway and opened the envelope. Inside was a handful of typewritten sheets. Looked like a lot of headache for five pieces of paper. And then the bell rang. Two of them were consignment slips for 8,000 gallons of high-grade Canadian whiskey. The other three slips were detailed breakdowns for a convoy of trucks. They showed special truck routes over the Canadian border into the States to miss the hijackers and the prohibition agents. They showed a day-by-day schedule for each truck on its trip down from the border. Well, it's not too tough to hijack a load of booze, but when you got it laid out right down to the time, the place and how many bottles, it's like money in the bank. Well, I knew right then why the envelope meant so much to Ludden Dex. What I couldn't understand was where they got it. Why they gave it to me to hang on to. Well, maybe they were working for Quinlan, but why didn't he have the papers, and why weren't they in his safe? Mike had a big one. Well, the questions were still piling up. It was an outside chance, but I couldn't stand still, so I crossed over to the Kansas side and headed down Boulder Road to Fat Annie's place. Maggie Jackson did two things good. She sang the blues better than the guy who wrote them, and she could pick up an idle rumor at three miles. Hi, Pete. Maggie, what do you know? I knew you'd be here tonight. You always come in together. Trouble and Pete Kelly. Yeah, I know. I never come around except when I need something. As long as I have it to give, you got it. It's Mike Quinlan that's tying in. Well, that's part of it. I'm in it up to my ears. You got an envelope, I heard. Yeah. Mike Quinlan and some of his boys have been here about an hour ago. They tore the paper off the walls looking for you and Dex and Ludd. Dex and Ludd? Mike wants all three of you. Yeah? Anything else? No. Bonnie Ricketts called for you. Did he leave a number? He's still waiting on the phone. I took the call. He said you'd end up here, so he just hung on. Well, I'll get it right now. Yeah, the boss is kind of mad. The phone's been tied up for two hours. All right, thanks, Maggie. Sure, and good luck, Pete. Hello, Barney. Ah, there you are, Petey. That'll be a dollar twenty-five for another three minutes. Yes, all right, operator. Alfonso, five more quarters, please. No, no, the quarters. Just a minute, Petey. Alfonso doesn't know the quarters from the house. Yeah, well, hurry up. What's going on, Barney? Where are you? Fort Madison, Iowa. I'm troubleshooting for you, Pete. What'd you find out? It's a double cross. Mike Quinlan's involved in one of the biggest deals of his career, and Benny Davis, along with Dex and Ludd, stole the consignment papers. Yeah, I know. That's what's in the envelope. You better get them back to Quinlan. I understand he's been tearing up the town for them. Well, what do I do about Dex and Ludd? Yes, you might easily end up like Benny Davis. Uh, seems Ludd and Dex didn't want to split it three ways, so they killed him. You sure about all this? That's why I'm up here in Iowa. No, I'll see you when you get back. It's been a gay, mad world, Petey. We drove 60 miles an hour all the way up here. Yeah? Alfonso's drunk. He thinks the phone's a slot machine. He's waiting for the payoff. Well, as soon as I hung up the phone, everything fell into place. I had one big worry, to get back to the club and unload those papers before Quinlan caught up with me. Well, almost everything made sense now, except the killing of Louise Davis, Benny's sister. It was easy to see why they dropped Benny along the way, but why his sister? How did she tie in? Well, on the way back to town, I mulled over a couple of possibilities, and I figured maybe I came up with the answer. 
I started back for town, and it was rough all the way. I kept thinking any minute I'd bump into Mike Quillen, and I couldn't be sure that I'd lost Dex and Ludd. It was almost dark by the time I got back to the club. The band was waiting around for the Sunday rehearsal. We ran through one number, and then things got cloudy. Now, Kelly. You're early, Dex. Close enough. No, not for me. You said six o'clock. Your horn's no match for this gun. Give me the envelope. Six o'clock, Dex. All right. Let's try someday, sweetheart. Hand me that plunger, will you, Red? I'll give you the pickup. Nine-year-old. 
Kelly's Blues, starring Jack Webb, with story by Jim Moser and music by Dick Cathcart, scoring by Matty Matlock. of Pete Kelly's Big Seven consists of Dick Cathcart on cornet, Maddie Matlock on clarinet, Nick Patrul on drums, Ray Sherman on piano, George Van Epps on guitar, Judd Donat on bass, Mo Schneider on trombone. The songs of Maggie Jackson were written by Arthur Hamilton. Kelly's Blues is a presentation of the United States Armed Forces Radio Service. Another mystery on Mystery Radio X, X, X. I have another story to tell you today. This one is about a crime in which a murderer is trapped by one of the most powerful forces of nature. Do you want to hear it? Now starring Paul Fries as your teller of tales. Another story from The Black Book. Yes, from the world's most fabulous collection of strange and unusual stories, The Black Book, I have selected a story called The Vagabond Murder. Eric Patterson was growing desperate. He'd been there for over two hours, waiting. Waiting with less and less patience for the door in front of him to open. He listened intently for the warning sound of the key in the door. Eric needed to be warned because when the man he was waiting for entered the room, Eric was going to kill him. As the seconds ticked past in the darkness, Eric thought back to the beginning of all this. It was in New York. He had taken his wife, Karen, along on a business trip. It had been quite successful, and one of the best contacts he'd made was Henry Drucker. Drucker, the richest, most influential man in the whole investment business. And he seemed to like Eric from the start. And with Karen, they made a gay trio the last few days. Rounds of cocktail parties, the theater, endless nightclubs. And then on the last evening of all, Drucker had said, Look, Eric, why not join me on the Bermuda trip? The best thing in the world for you and Karen. My yacht sails tomorrow. What do you say? At first, Eric thought it was just talk, but he was wrong. And the next day, they sailed for Bermuda on Drucker's yacht, The Vagabond. It wasn't until the return trip that Eric began to suspect that it 
wasn't him Drucker was really interested in, but Karen. And then the night before they were to dock in New York, it happened. The three of them were sitting at the small bar after dinner when Karen got up, said she wanted some fresh air, and went out on deck. A few minutes later, Drucker excused himself. I think I'll go to my cabin, Eric. But I won't be long. Uh, wait here for me, will you? Well, yes, if you like. Good. Then we'll have a nightcap together. And so Eric was left alone. As he sat there, disturbing images began to form in Eric's mind. Pictures of Drucker, handsome, virile, wealthy. And of Karen, young, beautiful, and oh, so impressionable. With a suddenness that overturned the bar stool, Eric was on his feet, and half running, he crossed the room and went down the corridor to Drucker's stateroom. Drucker! Drucker, open the door! Drucker, do you hear me? Open this door, I'll break it down! Just a minute, Eric. I'll be right there. Just take it easy. I'll take it easy till I count to five, then I'm coming in. One, two... All right, Eric. Where's Where's my wife? Well, you must be drunk, Eric. Karen isn't in here. Was she in here, Drucker? Tell me the truth. Don't be a fool, Eric. Of course she wasn't. Then why was your door... Oh. Oh, I... I guess I have made a fool of myself. I'm sorry, Drucker. Forget it. I'll tell you why I locked the door. You see, Eric, I'm diabetic. I have to give myself an insulin shot about this time every night. Naturally, I don't talk about it, nor do I like anyone barging in while I'm at it. Eric stood there feeling like a fool while Drucker washed the hypodermic needle and put it away in a box. Eric watched him place the box next to a packet of insulin capsules in the drawer of the night table by his bunk. I can understand your jealousy, old man, with a wife as lovely as Karen. But I know women, Eric, and Karen is in love with you. She always will be. Look, I'm terribly sorry about this, Drucker. Oh, now, let's just forget all about it. Matter of fact, I've been wanting to talk to you about something I've already told Karen. It should prove how I feel about you, Eric. Here, pour yourself a drink. Thanks, I need it. Um, you know anything about uranium? That's expensive. Know anything about Peru? (coughs) What are you driving at? Uranium in Peru, Eric. Big. Really big. And the payoff is so big that I was going to put in $750,000 on my own. But I'll let you have $250,000 of it if you want it. Hmm. That's a lot of money. Mm. So is a return of 23%. Yeah. But I haven't got that much. I'd have to borrow on everything. 180 days should see the first dividends. You'll have a certified check within two weeks. Back in New York, Eric and Drucker spent hours poring over graphs, reports, charts, surveys to make certain their investment was sound and they could find no flaw. But six months later, Eric learned that even the most guilt-edged promotion can fail. Uranium in Peru didn't make him a millionaire. It ruined him. It took his entire personal fortune. And because he'd borrowed so heavily, his business and his credit were ruined. Eric suddenly found himself without a single capital asset. In desperation, he went to see Drucker. So that's the picture, Eric. There isn't a thing I can do. Yes, of course. I understand your position. All my cash assets went, too, and everything else of mine is tied up. You can't touch it for years. Well, 
We took a chance and we both lost. Thanks again, Drucker. Um, Eric, do you have any plans? Well, I've had an offer from the coast. Oh. Small investment house in Oakland. Well, I'm sure it'll work out fine. Uh, tell me about Karen. How is she taking all this? Karen? Oh, she's... She's really great, Drucker. Now she decided to go back to modeling in New York for six months or so. Just while I'm getting started, you understand? She's a fine girl, Eric. You're very lucky. Yes, I know I am. Well, goodbye and thanks again. Out in California, Eric thought often of Drucker. After all, it was part of the game. They'd miss this time, but maybe the next. More often, however, he thought about Karen in New York. He'd heard from her regularly at first, and then the letters stopped. For six weeks, he heard nothing. He phoned long distance again and again, but nothing was able to find her. And he was beginning to be beside himself with worry and fear. Then one night, his phone rang. Yes, hello? Uh, Mr. Patterson? Yes? Uh, this is Oliver Fay. I do a little gossip column here for the Herald. I hope you read me. No, I don't. Uh, well, anyway, perhaps you'd like to make a statement. Statement? What are you talking about? Well, it's about the marriage of Karen, your perfectly lovely ex-wife, and Henry Drucker. Where'd you hear this? <laughs> I never reveal my sources, Mr. Patterson. But they're driving Mr. Drucker's Nash Healy out from Reno tomorrow... They'll be married aboard the Vagabond. Oh, it'll be terribly romantic, sailing off to the seven seas in search of happiness, nursing their newfound love under the Southern Cross. At first, Eric thought it was all a lie, that perhaps he was the victim of a cruel prank. But he had to find out. And an hour later, he was standing on a fog-wet pier, looking at the sleek white outline of the vagabond. And suddenly, as waves of nausea swept through him, he understood everything. Drucker had deliberately ruined him, and undoubtedly with Karen's knowledge. These last six weeks, Karen had been in Reno, divorcing him by default. Everything had been taken from him. His money, his wife, his pride, and he hated them for it. Derek stood there raging, his eyes fixed on the porthole he knew to be that of Drucker's own cabin. And suddenly he realized that he was going to kill Drucker. And a second later he knew how he was going to kill him. He returned to his rooms and dialed the number of the Herald, asking for Oliver Fay. Fay speaking. Mr. Fay, uh, this is Eric Patterson. Oh, yes. Uh... Look, I, I want to apologize for my rudeness earlier this evening. Oh, that's all right, Mr. Patterson. People are often harsh. Yes, well, I'm sorry. I would like to give you a statement now. It's simply that Henry Drucker and I are close friends, and, well, there's no ill feeling between any of us. You understand. I certainly wish them the best of everything. Well, good. I'll print that, and I'll show it to them tomorrow night. And, you know, there's a pre-wedding party aboard the Vagabond. Oh, what time are they sailing? I might want to send them a wire. Well, I have my little notes right here. Let me see now. Cocktails at 5.30, then dinner at about 8, and finally the sailing uh, around 2 a.m., I think. You know, it's going to be such fun. I'm the only one of the literary crowd they've included. Oliver Faye gushed on, but so Eric wasn't listening now. There, he had all the information he needed. Henry Drucker was as good as dead right now. Fireworks. <laughs> 
about 6.30 next evening, Eric stood in the shadows of the pier and watched the last of the guests arrive and board the vagabond. Then he walked quickly across the open area directly to the porthole of Drucker's cabin. He was unobserved. The porthole was on a level with the pier, and Eric had to lie on his stomach in order to crawl through it. A moment later, he was safely inside. He closed the porthole and waited for his eyes to become accustomed to the darkness. Then he found the night table by Drucker's bunk and removed the hypodermic needle and insulin. Quickly, he filled the syringe with more than enough insulin to kill a man and placed it carefully on top of the table. Next, he found a towel and rolled it lengthwise. With it, he could choke Drucker into unconsciousness without leaving a mark. Now he was ready. An hour passed. Then two. And a third, more slowly than ever. And for the first time, Eric grew nervous. Another hour and the towel in his hands was wet with perspiration. What had happened? Had Drucker, in the excitement of the evening, forgotten his injection? Panic began to rise in Eric, and he fought it back desperately. And then suddenly, he heard a key in the door. He stood back and waited. The door opened, and Drucker, a black figure against the light of the corridor, entered the cabin. Eric waited until he'd blocked the door behind him. Then he moved. The towel went around Drucker's neck and Eric twisted it with a frenzied strength. After a moment or two, Drucker ceased to struggle and Eric finally released him. He might have been dead already, but to be sure and to make it look like suicide or an accident, he injected the overdose of insulin. Then it was over. Perfect. Eric sighed deeply with relief and satisfaction. Mr. Drucker? Uh, Mr. Drucker! Oh, come now, I know you're in there. You promised me an interview, you know. Terror-stricken, Eric moved to the portal. His hands trembled as he opened it and prepared to climb through. But something was wrong. The portal was open, but he couldn't get out. Blocking it six inches from his hands was a solid wall of pilings, great timbers side by side. The floor of the pier was now two feet above him. For a moment he was dazed. And then he knew. The tide. The tide was going out, and the ship had dropped a few feet with it. The tide had cut off Eric's only escape. He was hopelessly trapped. He sat down heavily, almost ready to cry. I'm still here, Mr. Drucker, and I'll wait right here all night if necessary. <laughs> uh, do you hear me? <laughs> Black Book stars Paul Fries as your teller of tales, assisted today by the noted Hollywood actor John Daner. The Vagabond Murder was written by Norman MacDonald and John Meston and directed by Mr. MacDonald. The special music is composed and conducted by Leith Stevens. Every Monday night, a top Hollywood star plays the leading role in a thrill-packed story on suspense on most of these same CBS radio stations. Clarence Cassell speaking. Remember, Broadway Playhouse brings you top stars and top stories Sunday nights on the CBS Radio Network.
Join us again next time on Mystery Radio X. <laughs> <laughs>